anybody there? It seems I'm all alone again. Does anybody care? This planet's empty. I see no signs of life. Please don't tell me that the human race did not survive. There are no people in the future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Hey everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. We are officially in April. We have managed to clear the April Fool's hurdle and here we are. It is Monday, April 3rd, 2023. Welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop Live. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. <clears throat> Excuse me. On Out to Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyards from across the country. You can also join us at the end of the week for our Friday Politics Roundup, where we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can get all our shows by subscribing to our podcast at Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can help support the show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Five bucks a month. It's freaking awesome. Come on, you can jump in. You can also help out the show by heading over. I mean, that's actually, you want to help out five bucks a month, head on over to patreon.com slash RC Press. But you can help with the show right now by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And for more PA Progressive Talk, tune in to the Rick Smith Show, Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern, wherever you get your streams, you know, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you're going to go. And make sure you subscribe to his podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Go to ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all those platforms. And if you haven't already, you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political culture behind this podcast. Rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't heard, well, you haven't been listening, I guess. The Signal is a new podcast from the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by yours truly. Twice a month, The Signal will shine a light on the right-wing extremist current streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community through calmer, saner, progressive roots. Check out the podcast at buckscountybeacon.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming to Apple Podcasts real soon. We're working out the last kinks on that one. Everywhere else you get your podcasts, you're going to find The Signal. Do check it out. We just recorded two amazing interviews that you are not going to want to miss, so pay attention. And attention all you gamers out there. The Game In, that's with two ends. The Game In is a Quaker Town-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And kids get discounts when they get A's in the report card. How can you beat that? Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at The Game In. If you got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a special shout out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Day Man. That's with two N's, at Song of Day Man on Twitter. 
And things are heating up. That's why we cannot let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging, is chi- Raging Chicken has teamed up with Level Field to launch a truly community-rooted pack. Invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money, and you can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Well, tonight, I'm very excited. This week, I'm welcoming Karen Faridan back to the show. Karen is the founder of Burke's Gas Truth and co-founder of the Better Path Coalition. Better Path Coalition are the organizers for the PA Climate Convergence. Yes, we'll be talking about that tonight. We'll be talking also about a renewed push for hydrogen to power a green economy, coupled with initiatives for carbon capture and storage. Sounds great, right? Well, we'll get to the truth of the matter, I think. And this October, the PA Climate Convergence will bring advocates, activists, and concerned residents to Harrisburg to tell Governor Shapiro, lawmakers, and regulators that they are having the wrong conversation on climate and need to change their stance. We'll talk about why lawmakers are keeping PA from being part of the solution to the climate crisis and what all of us can do to change that. Well, everybody, I want to welcome to the show Karen Faraday. Karen Faraday, welcome back to the show. I'm so happy to see you. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to be back with you. Well, it's super. Well, listen, before we launch into um, the stuff really that's going on here in PA and the stuff around hydrogen and carbon capture, although there's some overlap here, uh, I'm just curious about your take on, you know, what we've just heard from the IPCC once again. Um, The latest kind of summer report was just released. Um, As much as the press release that came out of that was trying to paint a rosy picture of what we're facing, um, you know, and I think that there's there's some truth to that. If you want to say like humans cause this so humans can change it. okay, I'll buy that as a as a positivity. But everything else in the report seemed pretty, pretty uh, sobering, if you will. So I'm just kind of curious to get your thoughts on on what we just saw from that report and what you think why you think we need this action now? Well, you know, it's really important to recognize that the IPCC report occurs over a number of years. This was the sixth cycle, but it started in 2019. And so um, it's been going for some time. And over the course of those years, they've written six reports. The last one is the one that just came out like two weeks ago. It's the synthesis report that synthesizes all those other reports that have been written. And so those are the reports, those earlier ones are the ones that are written by the scientists. And there's a lot more truth in a lot of those reports than there are in the, um, than there is in the uh, synthesis report, because that's one that becomes highly politicized. That's the report that contains the um, summary for policymakers, where they try to put it into as plain a language as they possibly can, but that's also the one that gets negotiated by different governments. And so in order for them to put the thing out on time or on any kind of time frame, they have to come to consensus. And so as recently as the Thursday, or as late in the process, as the, as the Thursday before the Monday when it was released, I had heard from people who were actually there that they were so far, like I think 75% away from being uh, in agreement that they really weren't thinking they were going to make the deadline. And um, by Sunday night, they had concluded all of their meetings and had come to agreement and they were able to get the report out on time. However, um, the people who had already made their travel plans, and a lot of those people were from developing countries, they had to leave 
So they couldn't be there for the entire process. And that was very upsetting to them. One was choking back tears, according to one of the reports, talking about how, you know, this is supposed to be an inclusive process. And we're the most vulnerable. We're the ones who are going to be experiencing this stuff and already are more than anybody else. And we're cut out of the process now. And so there's this really excellent report that has a play-by-play that talks about everything that was happening in those negotiations. And it was very clear, and it wasn't just Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia worked very hard in those last hours to make sure that the language on fossil fuels was softened and that um, they were going to be talking up carbon capture and storage, actually. Um, So they were pushing for that kind of stuff. And what's really unfortunate is that, you know, the report itself is still pretty dire when you read yes. about how, you know, these things are happening to the planet and aren't going to be reversible. And if we don't do something, you know, we're going to hit 1.5 sooner than we think. You know, there's all these scary things in the report. And that's actually a conservative view, the one that they were able to agree upon. And so they like to talk about, like you were saying, some of it's positive, how we've made some improvements and and we have i mean the world is moving slowly in the right direction but the the news is terrible and anything that you saw that sounded terrible out of that report do it like times a million because they really soft pedaled a lot of the worst news in that thing and so we are really truly out of time yeah i think you know it's it's interesting i i was i was thinking about that report a lot and if I were to take the best case scenario, like if I were to, you know, say that all those players that were putting together the, the report, like were were in it to really try to, to put together something was good. And again, that's a fictional world. I understand that. Right. Um, but even if they were, I mean, I can appreciate how difficult it would be to balance the absolute catastrophe that we're facing with trying to like not get people so cynical that they're going to believe that there's nothing that we can do. I mean, and again, the fossil fuel industry has put us in this situation where to, to butt up against the point where people were just going to throw up their hands and say, there's nothing that we can do. And so, I mean, I, I get that balancing act, right? I mean, I can understand that, but nonetheless, um, you know, really it was one of those, one of those, those reports where you really, you scratch the surface and right below the surface are pretty dire warnings. And I, I kept on thinking about this, this, this sign I had put up on my office door, right? After, I don't know if it was 2018 or 2019, where the report came out and said, look, we've got 12 years. We've got 12 years to turn the ship. And I put up this thing, it says, we have 12 years left. And I put that up on my office door and been, have been scratching off the years ever since. And it was like five, you know, five years ago or so. Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, it, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know what to say to that, right? Other than, you know, that's kind of where I sit and where I was left with that report. Yeah, I mean, the good news, even from people who, you know, are reputable figures in this world of, um, you know, climate science and, you know, people who are authorities on it, who have studied it closely, still believe that we have time to avoid the worst impacts of climate change that, you know, but what it would take would be, something that requires the kind of courage we don't see in our government. And in fact, we see quite the opposite. You know, we see what Biden just did by approving the Willow Project. You know, right. I mean, we're, we're moving in the wrong direction in a way that we really don't have to. We need every second of that time that we have left. So it's possible to do it. It's still within the realm of possibility. We can avoid the worst impacts, but boy, are we not making the right steps or taking the right steps that we need to, to do that, to take advantage of all that time. 
And so we actually last summer, talking about the Pennsylvania climate convergence, the last thing we did there on the Monday of our you know, third day of our actions, we installed a climate countdown clock in the Capitol and it's still there. And we sign up to have it back there every month so that it never leaves. So that every time they're going down to the cafeteria, you know, a little restaurant there on the East Wing to have lunch with their lobbyist friends, they have to see that clock and they have to see that the seconds are ticking down. And so we intend to leave it there. It's the second biggest clock, the climate countdown clock of its kind in the Americas, actually. The only one that's bigger is the one in Union Square, New York City. So we actually have the second biggest clock in the Americas in that capital where it needs to be. Well, you know, and Pennsylvania is a good place for it, right? I mean, the place where the first oil well was drilled, right? A uh, place where the kind of Marcella shell boon kind of took place. They, you know, the context that gave birth to Burke's gas truth, right? I mean, all this stuff. So it's a good place for it. Um, but, you know, I guess the other piece of good news, right, is that, you know, hydrogen and carbon capture are going to save us all, right? So that we don't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah. right? it so, so let's... It's simple. We don't actually have to do anything differently, as it turns out. Yay. That's fantastic. All right. Well, it's good having you on tonight, Karen. Thanks so much. We'll see you later. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, you know, I remember the time like when hydrogen was really being talked about as, um, you know, as a real possibility of what, what we need. Right. And it's and I don't want to take hydrogen and just put hydrogen in kind of like an all or nothing camp here. Right. Because and just say, let's be clear about that. But walk us into I mean, you've been drawing attention to this now about, you know, the problems with the approach with this hydrogen and carbon capture and storage. Can you first kind of talk a little bit about kind of what that issue is and then then we can get into some of the issues that are involved with it? Yes. So. There have been a couple of bills passed in the past couple of years. Um, one of them was the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and the other one was the Inflation Reduction Act. And both of those bills throw billions and billions of dollars at hydrogen. And Jennifer Granholm, who's now the you know, chair or the secretary, rather, of the Department of Energy, she talks very enthusiastically about starting a hydrogen economy, and that's what we need to build. And that all sounds great, except that a lot of these things that we are throwing all this money at don't exist yet. And there are good reasons to believe that some of them will never be viable. Um, and so let me explain what that means. So hydrogen is not something that you go and extract. It's produced. And so the way you produce hydrogen is from other kinds of energy sources like fuels, like natural gas. Um, and so they've actually color coded hydrogen to explain its feedstock and uh, the production process that's used. And so in the case of hydrogen, there are different colors like pink referring to nuclear. So if it's produced from nuclear energy, it's called pink. If it's produced from entirely renewable energy sources, it's called green hydrogen. Um, but the kind that we're talking about here in Pennsylvania is called blue. Now, the one that is responsible for, you know, providing 99, 95, 99%, depending on who's giving you the number, of the uh, hydrogen that's out there today, uh, that is characterized as gray. And so gray hydrogen is the one that comes from methane. So it means mm -hmm. lots of fracking, lots of drilling. Um, right. The process that's used is called something like, uh, I mean, it's called steam methane reforming. So that's the process that's used to take the methane and heat it up, separate it out and, you know, get the hydrogen and, and so forth. But the problem is that, again, that requires a whole lot of, uh, you know, methane to be, 
produced in order to have the feedstock. And then it's still very dirty because there's a lot of carbon emissions from the process. So what they've done to make it a greener, uh, healthier, you know, planet-friendly uh, process is to tack on carbon capture and storage with the idea that the carbon capture and storage process is going to capture the carbon emissions. And so, great, now it's clean. Well, no, because there's nothing in the process that addresses the methane emissions themselves, which are incredibly dangerous. Methane, when it hits the atmosphere, is 86 times more powerful than carbon dioxide when it hits the atmosphere. It's that much better at insulating you know, the atmosphere, warming temperatures. And so the fact that we have so little time left, uh, this is not the time to be contributing methane to the problem. That's why we should be banning fracking. That's why we shouldn't be doing it at all. Um, so now to use it as a feedstock and require even more of it to be produced makes no sense because there's nothing at all in the process that mitigates those emissions, captures them, does anything with them. So the problem is, though, in the end, too, that you're not really capturing the carbon. So the carbon capture right. and storage piece of it doesn't work either. And so what's supposed to happen is that um, they're supposed to capture all this carbon now the way that they do it is to fuel the process with methane. So now there's more methane involved. That's so exactly. now <laughs> the carbon is supposed to be captured, is supposed to be put into these um, pipelines, a whole new generation of pipelines, very costly, very dangerous pipelines, um, it's sent to some place where it's going to be injected into the earth, sequestered, and it's supposed to stay there forever. Now, there's no proof of any of this. It's unproven. It's not worked where they have tried it. I think there are about 13 projects. If you look on the list of um, you know carbon capture projects around the, the country, all of them, except for two, uh, involve something called enhanced oil recovery. So the idea, and they've been doing this for decades, uh, they've been capturing carbon so that they can inject it into the earth to get more oil out. That's what these carbon capture and storage uh, you know, processes have been, not so much the accent on the storage, mostly about capture and using it for what they call EOR, enhanced oil recovery. So um, problem is that now that they say, well, now we're just going to sequester it, we're not going to use it for that. There's only one business, and that's an ADM facility, one of those Archer Daniel Midlands, I think, yep, yep. national plant in Decatur, Illinois, that says... Yeah, they, they donate to PBS, right? So they're the good people, So right? they're the good guys. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> so, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> no, so they say that they're sequestering everything at their facility, except they're not, because they're only managing to capture just a small part of what they actually admit, and that's what's being sequestered. If they're doing it at a phenomenally expensive cost. They've, they're still way, 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 way over budget trying to do this at all. And again, there's no guarantee that it's staying in the ground <laughs> once it's sequestered. So it's generally been a failure. And so to build this entire hydrogen economy around um, blue hydrogen is a huge mistake. Um, in Pennsylvania, unfortunately, that's exactly the kind that they're talking about producing here. So what the Department of Energy did is they um, set up these what they're calling hydrogen hubs. So they have this money that they're dedicating to establishing these hydrogen hubs around the country. And what's happening this week on this Friday, uh, April 7th, is the deadline for applications to be submitted by different parties that want to create these hydrogen hubs where they are. And one of the requirements by the Department of Energy was that at least two of them have to be in places where there's a lot of natural gas. And so, um, you know, and they have different requirements for different parts of the country, but 
basically, you know, <laughs> where are they going to find more natural gas than just a couple of places in this country? Texas, right. you know, the Gulf being one of them, Pennsylvania and the you know, Appalachian region being the other. And so surely we are going to get some kind of a blue hydrogen hub, which is the last thing that we need. But that's what you know, looks like we're going to have. There are three projects that Pennsylvania is involved with at minimum. Um, they're not disclosing what all the applications are, but if the applicants disclose themselves, then we hear about them. And so there's a big one that's being proposed in Pittsburgh area, um, but that would also pertain to the rest of Appalachia. They'd all be working together. And then there's another variant of that that's being centered in uh, West Virginia. And conversely, then Pennsylvania would be part of their hub. And then there's another one that's in Philadelphia, and that would be Philadelphia, Southern Jersey, and um, Delaware. And so right in this region, you know, we are already on the books for having at least three hubs that we might be a part of if, you know, at least one of them is selected. So that means, again, we're off to the races with lots more, not just lots more fracking to get all of the um, methane that they would need, but also lots more infrastructure development. So now we're going to see lots more pipelines coming through, lots more, uh, you know, injection wells. And they're terribly dangerous things. Uh, you know, just lots and lots more infrastructure. And then there's the hydrogen infrastructure, too, and the processing facilities. And we're just going to see lots of new stuff coming in addition to the businesses that believe that they can take advantage of this right. to, you know, to produce whatever they want to do with the hydrogen. Well, and the politicians too, right? Because the politicians are looking at this from the jobs, jobs, jobs perspective, right? There's, I mean, it's an easy sell, right? Especially because it, it, it tracks the well-worn path that we're familiar with, right? As these things have been there. So when you say pipelines, say pipelines mean jobs, you know, pipelines mean good union jobs. You know, this is how the argument goes, right? And we all know that like the history of that argument in Pennsylvania has been a complete bust right? Because the jobs that are around are around for a short period of time, and they don't measure up to the long-term impacts and costs that are put on communities, right? The loss of jobs, the loss of infrastructure, especially when, you know, the gas prices tank, you know, we've seen this happen again and again and again. And frankly, you know, like, as you were talking about what was happening with the carbon capture and the hydrogen, this sounds like a, like a balance sheet solution, to a, 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 a real world problem, right? So in other words, if I can make an argument to those folks who are concerned that, you know, we need to do something about the climate, right? Or my constituents at least are really concerned that we need to do something about the climate. I need to demonstrate to them that what we're gonna do in this hydrogen economy is gonna kind of be a kind of a net zero emitter. And if you could show that on a balance sheet, even if it's a lie, right? Then you know again, most people are not paying attention to the the details of this, but we're all we get to see are the kind of the smoke and mirrors and the dog and pony show. Um, but in, but in the meantime, like you, you're just saying, we're putting up, we're kind of like like I don't know, like pouring fuel on the fire of the climate crisis. Exactly, you know, well put about you know the balance sheet approach to doing this because that's exactly what it is. It's um, you know, again, it's not. That there's any sort of uh, you know proven scalable technology involved in any of this you know even the other kind of hydrogen the one that's the best option out there is green hydrogen the one that's completely made from renewables but the cost involved in trying to do that and the amount of energy it takes to make hydrogen from completely renewable sources is just it's so much that it would actually be more efficient and cheaper to just 
use the methane as methane or just use the electricity as electricity in the case of green hydrogen. You know, it's so expensive to do this that it just makes no sense. And so, um, you know, so this hydrogen shot is what uh, Granholm calls it, trying to bring down the cost of producing hydrogen. And that all sounds great, but the way I look at it is that right now we have uh, an 80% problem and a 20% problem. So what they're saying for the expensive processes like green hydrogen even, that uh, you know, might not be the thing that we'll ever use to heat our homes, but it's the thing that we can use for those hard to abate sectors. So it would have some limited utility if it has any at all. Um, and so you know, we have an 80% problem and a 20% problem, but if you look at just the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and look at the way that the money was allocated in that one bill, 80% of the money goes to the 20% problem and 20% of the money goes to the 80% problem. So in that bill, $20 billion was directed toward uh, hydrogen carbon projects and only $480 million was directed at renewables, all renewables combined. And so it makes no sense when they don't have to be tested out. They don't have to be proven and they don't have to become scalable. They are proven. They are scalable right now. That money is needed to deploy them. We need to actually right. deploy those things. And they're not dedicating that money to it. Instead, they're throwing the vast sums of money at things that may be worth you know, researching and developing and refining for the future. But right now, we have an 80% problem and it's getting virtually you know, none of the money. It's getting 20%. That's nothing. So let me. So tell me if I'm wrong about this. So let me. So this is kind of how I hear this, and this is trying to get my eye like around this whole idea. Because like I mean, to, to an everyday person, when you're talking about say green hydrogen, right, and say that it's immensely costly and all this stuff, and then you can say, well, okay, maybe that's where we have to have really significant government subsidies of renewable, like of the renewable infrastructure, in order to produce the hydrogen. Like that, that's kind of like what I hear happening in those bills. And what, what I keep on, I can't help but draw analogies between the bank bailouts and what we're seeing here. And so the way I think about it is like this, is like, okay, we have a, a direct route. Like, so the bank bailouts, you give the money to the people who have mortgages so people don't lose their homes or go underwater, or you send the money to the biggest corporations, the banks who actually cause the problem, you send it to them and in the hopes that it will trickle down right on this. It's this classic story. And here with the hydrogen thing, it seems like, okay, even if we want green hydrogen and it's going to take a bunch of kind of public spending in order to do that, well, why wouldn't we spend the money on just like producing clean energy for people as opposed to going through an industry, right? It, it, I can't help but see this as the you know the plan and the play being made by the oil and gas industry and related industries to basically say this is our ticket to keep the subsidies coming in our direction to keep our profits to keep our power right as we make this transition because they're not fools right they know that they're going to so they're they want to burn everything they can in order to kind of get to that next stage when they can um, when they can do it and they want the public money to go to them as opposed to actually the people that need it. Because it seems to be, it'd be a lot more direct to just put solar panels in everybody's house, right? To actually have community kind of like, you know, community like solar farms that would fund little, to put solar panels on the top of every freaking flat, flat school roof that you could find. I mean, am I wrong about that? Because that's what it seems like to me. That's exactly, you're exactly right. And it's even worse because what has happened in the course of the last couple of years is a, a tax credit called 45Q 
has been expanded wildly and it's so impossible for the IRS and or EPA to try to track who's all taking advantage of this because it can be transferred. I mean, it's just, it's the whole thing, if you look into it, it's completely bonkers, but it, it's, it represents so much money that will not be coming into the government because it's tax mm -hmm. credit. So they just, you know, they can take the tax credit and that means that you and I, you know, have to make up for it somehow, you know? And so, you know, it's like pigs at the trough, you know, for real. I mean, they're just, they're just lining up to try to take advantage of this thing. And they're not even, you know, really hiding it. Like, um, you know, there are projects that you hear about coming into even Pennsylvania where, um, you know, you hear the, the people who are, you know, running these companies, these little startups, you know, they're talking about, you know, waiting to see what's happening with 45Q. And so what I really think is going to happen, and we've seen it with the petrochemical boom in Pennsylvania to a large extent, as bad as it is, it could have been so much worse. It was supposed to be so much worse. So I don't know if mm -hmm. you've been following what goes on in Western Pennsylvania and Beaver County where they have the shelf cracker plant. But, you know, that that's a plant where they they crack open um, ethene, you know, ethane molecules to get the ethylene out to make plastics. And so that's why they call it a cracker. It cracks open the molecule. Um, there were supposed to be five of those plants in Pennsylvania. And instead, we ended up with one. And so I have a feeling that whatever happens, we're going to end up with something terrible that comes out of this hydrogen experiment. But what's really going to happen, I think, is that it's mostly a trial balloon. And that, you know, they're going to see, interesting you know, if it's something worth doing. And so in the end, we'll end up with some bad stuff, terrible stuff that will really do a lot of harm wherever it is. But we're not going to end up with as much as we think. But what will have happened is we will have wasted every last minute we had. And so do we have, yep, sorry, and, all those, sorry. and all those parties will get rich in the process of taking their tax credit. Right. And we're all kind of left at square one, right? Um, kind of hoping that, you know, we're not going to be on the receiving end of the worst um, aspects of the climate crisis. Yep. Um, so do we have a sense of who are the people that are pushing for this? What kind of politicians or folks that are kind of getting lining up behind this? Because it, it seems to me, again, you're the expert on this one. It seems to me that this is is not a strictly partisan issue, but that this that we have um, Democrats, Republicans across the kind of party line who are kind of lining up behind this idea. And I even get the sense that um, some Democrats or quite a few Democrats actually um, see this as a, a way of, say, placating their kind of traditional kind of oil and gas folks, right, by um, saying, don't worry about it, things are going to be fine. And at the same time, being able to kind of cloak themselves in the kind of, you know, the green mantle of, of uh, you know, pro-climate. Um, but so, I mean, where are folks lining up around this? And, you know, this is obviously, I want to kind of move to talk about how, where we put pressure on this and what coming up with the PA climate convergence, why this is important. But to give us a lay of the land, uh, where, if we're looking at the PA legislature, looking at the governor's office, where do things stand in Pennsylvania um, in terms of the government? Yeah, I mean, that's been one of the very depressing things about this, because at the beginning, I mean, given what was going on with the federal government and those bills that were being passed and the mansion was the holdout, but that they were trying to get these things done, you know, um, it's really been something that was more pushed by the Democrats than the Republicans. And, for, and in fact, at first, you know, I would hear things out of the Republican Party where they were kind of opposed to it because they hadn't gotten their you know, marching orders yet, apparently, that no one knows what we want, you know. And so, you know, they were reacting against things like poor space, which is like the eminent domain issue of um, carbon capture. You know, do you own those cavities underneath your home 
where they could store carbon or do they own it? Can they take it from you? You know, and, and, you know, Republicans generally hate anything about, you know, land being taken from people. They at least care about property rights. And, and so, you know, things like that were off putting. And then all of a sudden everybody was for it because then they got, you know, that, oh no, you're supposed to be for this. But, um, yeah, but really it was Democrats who were more enthusiastic about it than anybody. And that was really scary because, you know, not only, um, you know, do people tend to just, you know, listen to their politician of choice and just believe what they say. But there was so much greenwashing with this. It really was yeah. cast as something that really is the solution and is all green and all good. And look, we're putting solar panels on the campus where we're producing the hydrogen. So we're even greener and you should love this. And we're going to compost all the poop at lunchtime. You know, it's like... <laughs> Oh my God! You know, it's like it, it, it was just sounding all too good to be true, and too many, you know, people were just kind of taking it hook, line, and sinker. And so, what we've done, and we can talk about this, you know, when we talk more about the convergence and stuff. But sure. what we've started doing this year is monthly, uh, you know, briefings, and we've been inviting elected officials to attend them and staffers. And I'm thrilled to say that we've gotten lots and lots of people attending our our briefings that we have is like virtual brown bag briefings to hear from the experts that none of this is really true and none of this is really going to work. And we really just have to go do the hard job of transitioning away from fossil fuels, period. Right. And so I'm, 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 I don't know that it's going to end up making the difference, but that's exactly where we feel that we need to be at this point is just trying to get the real story out there as much as we possibly can. Well, it does seem like this. I mean, I'm glad you just said that because I was going to ask you about what you thought of um, what was the possibility of actually persuading particular lawmakers and things like this, because it seems to me that there's. okay, maybe I don't I don't want to sound too starry eyed here. Right. But it seems to me that there's some people that genuinely believe that this was a good thing. Right. And I think about the folks who genuinely believe that natural gas was truly a transition fuel, right? Now, we know all the problems behind that, but I remember like the campaign of, you know, the blue flame, right? And that it burns cleaner. And so our focus was on that point of ignition, not everything else, but it was like, what is the, what is, what's the emission from that blue flame? And here, the image is the water dripping out of your tailpipe, right? I mean, the hydrogen is like, it produces only water, right? I mean, just water vapor or, or you know, drips of water. And so I could imagine they're kind of just perfectly, you know, people who would be behind it were kind of, you know, sold from that, but would that have the potential or would be potentially persuaded once they start to really dig into the science. I mean, are you finding that happening in those briefings and other lobbying efforts? I have to say that, yes. I mean, I haven't heard anybody specifically say, you know, uh, you know, you, I've had I've had awakening, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. However, I have had legislators come up to me and thank me for having these things because they feel like they're getting the facts and they're writing and asking us to get the studies that are behind it. And and so it feels like you know there's there's a like you said some percentage of the population there that did kind of buy it hook line and sinker wanted to because I mean I want to it sounds yeah, so. Right appealing that we could do something as simple as use hydrogen and harness that power to, you know, to fix so much of our, you know, not maybe everything, but take care of a lot of things. No, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way, but I understand the appeal of it. And so yeah. I, I think that, yeah, I think le legitimately there were a lot of people like that. And then I think there were a lot more people who knew nothing about any of it. I mean, we've got a lot of new legislators in Harrisburg this year. 
and they don't know you know necessarily anything about this if they haven't been tracking it and to be honest it's not that easy to know about because right. if you are not reading national press you're never going to hear about it in pennsylvania it's one of my huge frustrations with you know the way the media works in the state these days because of you know i guess you know relatively few number of owners of media and, you know, it takes independence like yep. you to get the real story out there. And so it's just not getting covered. Um, and so, you know, so it's really easy to not know about it. And I think the vast majority of the population doesn't know about it. And if they know something, they heard something good from the politician of their choice, period. And so we have a lot of educating to do because it's not just going to be us doing a few briefings that's going to you know right. persuade yes. anybody it's going to take pressure from the public state do not make this mistake again this is exactly the same mistake we made with fracking and we did no studies in the state before letting it come in nothing i mean it's just here we go again and i really feel like i know a lot of us do who have been in this for a while we feel like you know we're catapulted back about 20 years to when all this was beginning and they just kind of went into it blindly and here we go again have we, have we learned nothing from that experience and we apparently we have not learned anything <laughs> well it's like you know it's like we learn we learn about the specific thing but don't recognize the narrative it seems right don't recognize the story that is being told again and again and again the patterns of how this stuff happens um so that while people have learned about the specific thing called natural gas and fracking and its impacts which took tons of work for people like you and activists and kind of you know people fighting for this stuff and making sure that got heard to like, okay, we got that. And, but then we see the brand new thing comes along and we just seems like we forget the whole narrative again. And I think there's, you know, a lot of us have been going through that kind of cycle, not just with climate, but with a lot of things, right? We're seeing that the media is certainly not learned. It's uh, still gonna follow the, you know, the the drama story more that it's gonna follow, you know, the hard the hard truths that we need to do on climate. And frankly, it's, it's a, it's a hard story to tell, right? I mean, because we're talking about, you know, shifting the economy away from fossil fuel economy that will impact everybody, mm -hmm. right? And the question is, is like, and, and the, the worst thing about it is the longer we wait, like the worse the impact is going to be on the most vulnerable people to begin with, right? I mean, which is why we need people coming out and kind of, you know, yes, educating the legislators, but also making these moments where we're kind of like opening up a kind of uh, like the media window to be able to try to get some attention on this. And this is what you did last year with the PA Climate Convergence, which killed me that I just, I, I couldn't get my own act together to have you on before that one. Um, but now we've got another work on PA Climate Convergence coming up um, this fall, which promises to be one of these kind of moments, right? Um, so can you talk a little about what that is, like a little bit about how that was last year and where things and kind of where things are going, what the plans are and how you think that, you know, we can actually have an impact here. And I appreciate being able to talk about it because we're so excited that we came up with this kind of crazy idea last year and it worked, you know. So the idea was not simply to have this one-off event, but to have this uh, one-off event that, that was, you know, unique in that it was a three-day event um, be the beginning of a campaign. And so the campaign continues right now. Even though we're planning another event coming up, a two-day event this time in October, um, we're not stopping in between. You know, we're continuing to do actions every month, and those briefings are part of it. Um, we're also doing what we call a people's filibuster, where we stand there in the Capitol and we read the IPCC report 
because if they're not going to read it, we might as well read it to them, you know. And yeah. so we're doing all these different kinds of action all the time to um, just to, to be the drumbeat. And you know, it takes a lot of drummers to be the drumbeat. But we feel like we need to be able to do it as best we can because we do want to change the conversation. So part of that happens in the capital, uh, but part of it also happens in the city of Harrisburg you know, to have cultural events and other things like that. And so when we have the Pennsylvania Climate Convergence, the first day you know, for the first one, and again, this year was uh, a festival and will be again. So it's almost like an Earth Day festival. So there's something approachable, you know, but people who might go to an Earth Day festival might never go to a protest or a rally. So we wanted, right. you know, the public to be comfortable coming in. We wanted to talk about all of the issues. We also wanted to have, you know, uh, like performances, music and things that all just create this festival atmosphere. And a big part of what we wanted to do was um, related to art. So we wanted to use art in various ways. So one of them was to put that climate clock in the Capitol. We called that an art installation. If you call it art, you can put it in the Capitol for months at a time. If you call it activism, they'll remove it by the next morning. Right. So, so we use the term art to, you know, to refer to our, our installation at the Capitol, but we wanted to use it in other ways. For instance, one of the things that we did was we set up what would typically be held the night before the big march, which we did in the second day of our convergence last summer. Uh, we had um, an art build. You know, you typically do that in the evening before you go march, where you're making all the banners and the posters and everything. But we did it at the festival so that the average person coming through could help create the art. And then the idea was that if they're invested enough and in having helped make it, maybe they'll come help carry it. And so uh, so we did that. And we also wanted the art to be our footprint that we could leave behind. And also the thing that we can call upon you know, when we can't all be there to have some kind of an art installation in town or something, just so that there's always some suggestion of climate. Everywhere you go, you're going to hear about climate. So that it gets into their heads that it's a thing and we need to be worried about this. And so um, just like last Friday night, we had um, a woman, uh, Patty DeMarco from Pittsburgh, who uh, I think she was the director at one point of the uh, Rachel Carson Homestead, but she has since uh, gone to Chatham University where she also specializes in Rachel Carson. Um, but she has written a book. Um, and so we had a completely cultural event. We weren't sending any kind of message to Harrisburg, you know, politicians, but we were having a cultural event about climate change and about Rachel Carson and about, uh, you know, environmentalism and, you know, and just trying to always keep that subject in the ether. And so, uh, you know, we do this because what the industry has been doing to us for a very long time is sort of what they admittedly call psyops, where they, they do these things like in Western Pennsylvania, if you drive down the turnpike, you start to see these signs about how great carbon dioxide is and how much we love our carbon dioxide, you know, and they're not there to persuade anybody. They're just there to be ubiquitous, to be the, the wallpaper yes. of our lives, you know? And so it's just how we think about ourselves. This is who we are. This is where we live. That's what we want to do in Harrisburg. And so that's how we started with the convergence. That's what we're continuing this year with all of our various actions. And we'll have again uh, in October, the next one will be like the big event. And we actually did get from an anonymous donor funding to have these for five years. So five more years. That's awesome. Yeah. So we're really excited that we can just keep it up and keep the conversation going there and just do more and more and more as we get more and more members to help us. But um, what we managed to do uh, last time was uh, have just a ton of fantastic panels 
where we expanded out from what we do is the Better Path Coalition, which is very focused on fossil fuel side of things, especially natural gas. What we wanted to do as the Pennsylvania Climate Convergence was also create a new network to build our movement to show that, you know, if you're fighting a warehouse, you're one of us. You know, we're all fighting the right. same battles and they're very similar battles when you start really looking at them closely. And so we wanted to show that climate is not just about fossil fuels, it's about everything. And it's about environmental justice in a huge way, obviously. And there are lots of organizations that you know, focus on that, but it's about warehouses, it's about immigration, it's about, uh, you know, just you name it, uh, PFAS chemicals, you know, just ev everything in the end is a climate story. And we need to tell it together with one voice to say, that's why we need to do something now. That's why we need to do a hell of a lot better now than we're doing. And, you know, we're not just not moving in the right direction, we're moving in the wrong direction. Right hugely important yeah. that we stop doing that yeah i mean i don't you know i mean i've said this a thousand times in this podcast you know i have a you know two kids in middle school and um you know this was true i mean this was i mean i cared about this stuff obviously before um i ever had kids but you know i think about that every day i mean the urgency is just there because everything you know every day that something doesn't happen their lives are going to get worse in the long run um and it that's that's not you know pessimism that's just fact and science right i mean like and uh you know again the frustration is always we know what to do i mean we know what to do we have the tools to do it it's just about you know the say having the political will and the willingness to do this and you know i really like this idea of you know about keeping climate in the discourse um because you're right i mean they flooded the zone with uh you know you know keep calm and carry on kind of thing. Right. You know, I mean, that's their, that's like, you know, just keep, you know, filling your tank with fuel and blah, 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 keep on going. And, you know, I thought about this, um, we're, because obviously we, you know, we talk also a lot about, you know, the craziness happening in the school boards, right. You know, all this stuff. And now we just saw in Kutztown, right. You had Alan Gratz's uh, book being effectively banned from that, uh, or they shut down the program because, Kind of, you have these kind of extremists, the anti-climate, the climate deniers who say, no, we don't want our kids learning about climate. And it got me thinking about it is like, you know, I think the responses are generally, I mean, understandable. Like you was what, what's going on here? And you want to talk about all the reasons why this shouldn't be banned and all this stuff. That's really good. But I, you know, also start thinking like, what would it look like to start going to school boards and things like this with proposals? Like, Hey, we need to put solar panels on the roofs of our, of all of our schools. Right. Um, and because, and we could feed that because our schools basically sit vacant for the entire summer. Like when the sun is its hottest, the sun is shining the most, this could actually be kind of generational pay for itself in a very short period of time and generate that back to the community to basically sure to make sure that the farmers that are right down the street have kind of basically free access to power because we need to produce our food locally right and kind of getting at those those issues that you were talking about is you know climate is not just like the emissions going into the air it's everything right now um yeah and you know and, and there's lots of good news in it um in that uh, there, you know, we are seeing even in a state like Pennsylvania, we're seeing so many green jobs that are developing. And so, you know, it's hard to have a leg to stand on if you're defending fossil fuels, because it's not even the jobs creator that they've always tried to make right. it out to be. It never has been, you know, it's like the real way forward is so clear. And we're just not going in that direction because it doesn't suit the fossil fuel industry and our, you know, lily livered <laughs> electives who don't want to, you know, go up against the guy who, you know, finances their campaign, you know, it's just, it's terrible. And so, you know, just to circle back to that ABM plant in Decatur, Illinois, 
on that whole thing with all that carbon capture and all that nonsense with ethanol, blah, 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 it employs 12 people. There you go. You know, so why don't we do the thing that employs everyone? Why don't we get communities involved? And why don't we, I mean, what it would take to do to build that just in the first place is huge. And we could do so much. We could have everybody working and we could have everybody working at something that is in the death sentence. Because that's the other thing that is completely insane about what we do. I mean, the people who work in these trucks and do this drilling and they are exposed to every lousy thing <laughs> in the world. <laughs> I have a hearing problem, so I always have the, the most blaring sound <laughs> on my phone. I apologize for that. But uh, I want that. I want that as a sound drop on my sound. My keyboard, my sound drop. I, I think that's awesome. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's uh, you know, it's 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 just horrifying the stories that we hear from gas workers. You know, who mm-hmm. who are around this stuff, and they're not told to wear protective clothing. You know, I mean, you see these guys slopping around in trucks you know cleaning them out that's their job they're touching all this stuff and they're exposed to it and there's no protection so you know i, I mean why not create a, a whole generation of jobs that you know aren't a death sentence and so you know there's this great guy if you haven't read it um jason pardon me not jason justin noble for uh, rolling stone magazine wrote about all the radioactivity that's in our our waste, you know, our drilling waste that just gets, you know, disposed of. And then that's those guys who are working in those trucks and they're just, they don't know what they're up against and they get sick. And why, why are we doing that? Why can't we do things better? It's so much easier in the end and cheaper to do things right. Why don't we do it? Yeah. And hopeful, right. It provides a very different, I mean, you think about the difference of the vision of like those kinds of possibilities, right? It's a, it's a, it's nothing but, you know, a vision of hope and possibility, right. Of uh, rather than, you know, doubling down and kind of, you know, because I worry about what this means, you know, how people get pitted against each other, right? And how the kind of like the move towards demagoguery and authoritarianism just gets worse, the more that we don't address this stuff. Um, but let me ask you this. So like, so we've got, so we've got the, uh, to kind of, to make sure that we're not leaving everybody on the kind of like, uh, in the doldrums on the end, which I have a tendency to do, because I am the dark cloud in every room. But, um, <laughs> but, 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 you know, so one, you got the PA climate convergence coming up on October 1st and October 2nd, and there's going to have more information on that. And I hope that we can get you on before then too, as well. So we got, you know, right, you know, when we're leading up to that, want to make sure you get people out to that and so on. But, you know, if you're to kind of think about where we're at right now, um, where we're at in terms of, you know, say the climate movement or even more broadly, kind of the consciousness and action towards this um, compared to where we were, say, even like, say, 10 years ago. Is there reason to be hopeful, not just in an optimistic, you know, caring way, but are you seeing the kind of like movement kind of forming and that's pointing in a direction and say, look, we got a shot here, but we've just really got to double down. Yeah. I mean, I, I wake up every day excited to do what I do. <laughs> I don't think that we're going to, uh, you know, go, I think we'll be able to back away from the precipice. It's not going to be perfect. I mean, we've already changed the planet. So, you know, the idea now is to do everything we can to change as little as we can and give the planet a chance to heal and, you know, and provide a great future for future generations and not make them have to struggle the way we see people struggling already with extreme weather that's just going to get worse. So, you know, we have the possibility of doing all of that. We have the possibility of building a great economy. I mean, I think the way to look at this is that we have this moment that we can seize and make everything better. And so, yes, it's not going to be perfect. Like I said, there are some of the climate impacts that we're not going to be able to reverse at least anytime soon. 
fine. I mean, it's terrible and it shouldn't happen. And, and But we have this moment where we can stop it, where we can say, look at all the good things we can do. We can create a better world for ourselves than we had before. And that's what we need to do together. We just need everybody to, you know, join organizations like ours and, and organize in your communities. Go to the, your school board, ask them to put solar panels on the roof, find out what it takes, get involved. It, it's so doable. We just need to do it. Yeah, it almost sounds like, I don't know, something that's worth fighting for. You know what I'm saying? You know. <laughs> well, listen, Karen, I, I appreciate you coming on so much tonight, and I appreciate all the work that you've always done. I mean, you're always kind of have been on the ground working with lots of people who are just doing kind of crazy amounts of work um, to keep this uh, kind of front and forward. I uh, want to remind everybody that you want more information about this, you know, Go over and check out um, Burke's Gas Truth. You can check him out at gastruth.org. That's gastruth.org. Check out the PA Climate Convergence, all the information about that. There's pictures and there's kind of uh, right up to what happened in kind of uh, last year's one. Looking forward there. You can find out information about that at www.pennsylvaniaclimateconvergence.org. That's pennsylvaniaclimateconvergence.org. And find out about the Better Path Coalition, who's helping bring this all together by going to www.betterpathcoalition.org. Um, all those will, of course, be linked in tonight's show notes. Um, do check them out and help out where you can. Um, and, you know, make plans already set aside October 1st and October 2nd. Mark it on your calendar. Block it off. Um, this is an opportunity for us to go there, not just kind of to go out and kind of rally and protest like we see in Harrisburg quite often, but to be part of something, to meet people and to actually get glimpses of that hope um, of that future that's worth fighting for. So, you know, Karen, I appreciate you so much and thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you and Raging Chicken. Uh, you've been such an ally <laughs> for all these years. I appreciate it. Oh, uh, you got it, Karen. Well, listen, and thank you all for tuning in tonight. And for want to remind you, for listening to our podcast, you know, make sure you hit us on that five car, that five uh, star review. Let everybody know about why you come out. You listen to this podcast; it helps other people find the show. If you're watching this on YouTube or you're checking it on YouTube, make sure you like this stream. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast or subscribe to our channel to make sure that you get notifications every time that you go that we go live. Hit that little bell, um, you know. And in the meantime, you can help us out by heading on over to, uh, you know, Patreon.com/slash/RCPress. You can go over drop us a five dollar donation you can drop become a patron for five bucks a month that help keeps independent media going that we're able to bring people like karen on the show we have it tonight um karen i wish you all the best uh have a great week ahead of you and it's so great to hear that you get up every morning uh and look forward to the work that you got to do that gives me hope too as well <laughs> thank you and all the best to you too and i, I hope you survive lytle Hall. <laughs> oh god uh, we got a whole other conversation on that we're happening at kutztown all right everybody uh thanks for tuning out tonight this is kevin mahoney creator and founder of raging chicken remember head on over to patreon.com slash rc press become a patron for as little as five bucks a month we'll be back here pretty soon can't wait to tell you who we got coming on see ya I guess I'll fly away now